Hello and welcome to the latest version of our BNP Paribas Wealth Management Podcast. I'm Edmund Shing, CIO, hosting the podcast today, and I am joined today by my good friend and colleague Guy Elts from Luxembourg. Today, we are going to talk about long-term expected returns. This is an exercise that Guy performs every year to try to estimate what we can expect over the next 10 years from a range of different asset classes in the financial markets. The first question is pretty obvious. Why do we even bother doing this? Since we can't forecast short-term returns like one year out, why do we feel we're going to be more accurate over 10 years? And isn't the exercise just pointless? That's a good point. But interestingly, actually, we have a better visibility or a better chance to forecast the, the returns over longer periods of time than in the very short term, because the very short term is extremely sensitive to the starting point and the volatility. So this is the first thing to keep in mind. The second thing to keep in mind is that the actual aim of doing that is to really have the key component to bring together an optimal asset allocation, a portfolio of assets, thus starting with an expected return projection and then, of course, also calculating the volatility and more importantly, even the correlation, i.e. the possibility to benefit from diversification when we bring the assets together. So it's really about long-term investment. It's about having for each level of risk the best portfolios based on our return estimates, long-term return estimates, and of course, the calculation of correlation. So that's really the aim. Te the um, long term here means 10 years because that's generally what we see as, a, as the length or the, the, the period of time for a, a, a cycle. And on average, we assume that there is no net currency effect because there are a number of currencies generally when you bring together the uh, different assets into a, a portfolio. Maybe also interesting to note the importance of not using historical returns. Let's take an example. Last year, for example, we, we had uh, about almost 20 years of uh, very strong performance on the bond market side. And at the same time, last year, looking forward, the yield to maturity on long-term bonds was almost close to zero. So using historical returns would have been, a, would have been definitely a, a mistake. So the importance really here to realize that past performance is no good indication of future performance. Yeah, I think that's a very important point. You sound like a compliance officer when you say that, Guy, because we're always forced to say that. So my next question, obviously, you can compare the exercise that we performed this year with what we did last year. Now, from what I read in the table of returns, those returns are quite typically higher for many asset classes this year than it would have been last year. So why didn't you tell us what has really changed? And then we'll go into why they've changed in just a second. Yeah, I mean, the, the number one change really impacting the returns is the change in interest rates. I mean, the rates starting with the central bank rates. Um, we have to realize that since the beginning of this year, the central banks and in particular the U.S. central bank and the European central bank have been increasing rates in a way that hasn't been seen for decades. And that is really important because that's the starting point really for expected returns before you add some risk premium when you go to other type of assets with higher levels of risk. So that is really the number one change since last year. And even if you take the long-term bond yields, also 
uh, comparing to the yields we had at the beginning of the year, we are way higher today. So that is really the driver. Looking forward, the assumption we make is that inflation will come down. So central banks will be able, even if it's going to take probably another year or more, but they will be able to bring down inflation closer to the targets. Also important that we assume that growth on average will be somewhat higher than pre-COVID. Why? Because we see the huge impact coming of massive investments, be public or private, that are really around the theme uh, CO2 emission reductions, so renewable energy, but also the energy security. So that is going to generate uh, somewhat higher long-term growth. And we also assume that the uh, supply chain constraints and energy constraints, which are mainly a supply side constraints, will gradually come down and allowing growth to stabilize at higher levels compared to pre-COVID. So that's the really the starting point. So if we talk about bonds, first of all, as we've noted, bond returns seem to be mm-hmm. higher this year. And principally, I guess that's because the best predictor of long-term bond returns is just where the bond yields are today. Now, that's what I know from a very basic standpoint. But why don't you give us a little bit of more detail and flesh out how you arrive at these long-term bond forecasts, Guy? Actually, the bond side, and especially the government bond side, is the easy part because there are bonds available that have a maturity of 10 years. So you can actually read in the parameter of the bond, i.e. the yield to maturity, what is expected um, when you buy the bond and you just keep it uh, to the maturity. And that is exactly where such a big move has been seen since the beginning of the year. And taking these Really, as starting point, we're looking for 3% as an expected return for government bonds in the US and 2% uh, in Europe. Of course, in Europe, this is an average of different countries um, in Europe, of course. But 3 and 2 are the expected returns in the US and in Europe, respectively. Now, if we now move to a somewhat higher risk level, i.e. the bonds from corporates, we need to distinguish first between so-called quality, the investment grade, and then high yield, the more risky ones, be it corporate bonds or emerging bonds. What is really here the difference is that when you consider corporate bonds, you need to consider some default premium, some default risk Because, of course, corporates um, have a somewhat higher risk of defaulting compared to government. So what we do is actually we look at the long-term premium, the spread, the so-called yield spread. So the difference between corporate yields and government bond yields, for which we have many decades of history. And it is actually, uh, there is a good case actually to be made that there is no reason why that spread should be that much different over the next uh, 10 years. So we use a long-term average spread. And then, of course, we need to correct for the expected default rate. And then slightly more technical, we also use a so-called recovery rate, because even in the case of default, Um, the bonds are not necessarily falling to uh, uh, zero in the sense that the investors are not losing all. So we need to take into account default and recovery. 
The difference really to the more risky ones, the high yields emerging, is simply uh, that the spread is somewhat higher, but we do the same uh, type of exercise. So for the quality uh, corporate bonds, this exercise really leads us to 3.5 expected returns in the US, 2.5 in Europe. For the more risky ones, the corporate high yield, we would be uh, with 5.75 in the US, 5% in Europe. And for emerging bonds, 5.25. Here, emerging bonds, we're talking about uh, emerging bonds in in hard currency, so mainly in in dollars. So obviously, as you've pointed out there, Guy, the higher risk bonds should offer investors a higher return over time, but at risk of, you know, the risk of capital loss and volatility, in the intervening years. Now, talking about higher risk investments, we should then move on, I think, to equities and alternative investments. Clearly, we, we it's not quite as easy as with sovereign bonds to estimate the return. So what sort of approach do you use for stocks and shares and for alternative investments? Well, starting with stocks, of course, the big difference with bonds is that you don't have a fixed coupon. I mean, you have potentially a dividend payout, but that is not guaranteed and it can grow over time. So that's really here the point. Now, what we can use is, is a quite simple approach um, by uh, the, the so-called work from uh, Gordon Shapiro, which are basically um, bringing two pieces together here really to, to calculate the expected return, which is one, the dividend yield, and then two, the, uh, uh, the growth rate of the dividends over the period of time. So that is really here uh, the, the exercise uh, we do. So we, we, we look at the current dividend yield and then we estimate a long-term growth rate of the dividend, which is basically similar to the or close to the uh, growth rate of the economy. So doing that, we get a sequence of returns with the higher return in the developed world uh, in the UK, so with a 7% expected return, 6.75 for the Eurozone, 6.50 in the US, and 5.75 in Japan. Obviously, emerging market equities have a somewhat higher expected return, but obviously also because the risk, the volatility is higher. So here we're looking for an expected return at 8.25. For real estate, as we consider uh, here the um, the so-called REITs uh, real estate, um, we use a similar approach as for equities, i.e., the dividend, uh, the dividend yield, and the expected growth rate of the dividend, and that leads us to an expected a long-term uh, expected return at six fifty. Now moving to the um, to the so-called um, private assets, and then in particular private equity and uh, the infrastructure funds. Here, what we do is we look at the long-term premium that these assets offer, because there is a, a logical reasons why these assets offer a premium, because they also carry a higher risk, and the risk here or the additional risk is the so-called uh, liquidity risk, because when you invest into private equity funds, for example, compared to the S&P 500, uh, obviously you have a, a, a liquidity risk because you cannot exit your investment at any point in time. I mean, at the same time, it is also an opportunity because not all investors are ready to take that risk. So 
that is something investors need to look at case by case that is not suitable to all investors, but there is a premium that these assets offer. Now we look again at the long-term history on those, uh, on those assets and we, and using those um, historical spreads uh, versus S&P, for example, we have an expected return on private equity at 925 and for infrastructure at 875. And then finally, the um, alternative usage and commodities. Here we use a spread over cash. And again, from a historical perspective, the spread um, is then measured and added to our expected return for the cash. And using that, we get to a 4% expected return for both alternative usage and the commodity world. So as you pointed out there, some of these private assets and more illiquid assets like private equity and infrastructure, where you generally have to be invested for much longer periods of time and cannot get your money out in a hurry. As you pointed out, the fact that they're more illiquid also suggests that the opportunity is there for a higher return over the long term from patient investors who are willing to lock out their money for the requisite amount of time. But if we are to conclude then, I could ask you a simple question, which are the most attractive assets? But as we all know, it's never that simple because we have to start with the client, particularly the client's tolerance for risk. Are we talking about a conservative investor, balanced investor who can take a bit more risk than a conservative investor, or even a dynamic investor who's maybe younger, wants to take lots of risk? I guess what is important is what type of client are we talking about, first of all? And then we, I guess we can try to match the, the asset mix and the risk within the asset mix, and therefore the return within an asset mix to the profile of the investor. So how do we really do that, Guy? Yeah, well, I mean, the really important lesson here from this exercise is that the expected return on most of the assets um, are actually higher and sometimes much higher compared to last year. So that allows us also for each level of risk to actually access to a higher level of uh, return for a portfolio. Also, of course, keeping in mind the diversification uh, that comes from the correlation side. That is the first uh, big lesson. The second lesson is that if you look at it a bit more specifically, the biggest improvements in the uh, risk return trade-off is actually has actually been seen in the bond world compared to last year and to a low to a lesser extent in equities eurozone and equities uk so i guess this is these are the two big lessons really i think that's right so just to conclude then from my side i think what we can see here is that yes investors have certainly suffered this year in 2022 with negative performance quite significant negative performance from the main asset classes such as bonds equities and credit however we could also argue that for long term investors this is like resetting the long-term expected returns to a higher point because the starting point today is lower than it was a year ago. And because the starting point is lower, the future can therefore look a bit better. Thank you very much for your time, Guy, and for lending us your expertise. And thank you to the listener for taking the time to listen into this podcast. And please do have a look at our other podcasts. Please search for the term BNP Paribas Wealth on the podcast platform of your choice. Or alternatively, Please like, share and subscribe this podcast and also look on the web searching for BNP Paribas Wealth to look at our other reports and our other information that we publish on our Voice of Wealth web platform. Thank you very much for taking the time and talk to you again very soon. Goodbye.